You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Wow, so this is super exciting for me. Um, Some of you um, may not know me, some of you uh, do. Uh, So like Larry was saying, uh, we launched Village Church Station North a few months ago, and uh, this is... First time to be back in, in a while, and uh, it's like Christmas. It's, it's you move away from home, and you come back on the holidays, and you see folks, and sometimes your family grows, and so then there's people that you've never met, and you've got cousins getting to know each other, and it's like, who are you? Who's your parents? And they're my what? And you're trying to figure all that stuff out, and, and we're kind of like that, and so I, I hope that after... After service and after our celebration, we, you'll take time to kind of look and see unfamiliar faces and kind of find out where they're from and how they got here and, and what's going on there. Because that's, that's what this is, is family coming together for the holidays to enjoy and celebrate something spectacular and amazing that, that comes with incredible fanfare. I mean, it's not every day that angels show up and start proclaiming something special has happened. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not often at all that something like that happens. Um, so my family, where I grew up, um, I never realized how much work my parents went in, uh, how much work went into my parents actually making Christmas special, making it, um, over the top, amazing feeling so, so different from all the rest of the year. Um, I, I didn't realize until I moved away. And when I moved away, the Christmas season showed up, and I was like, this just doesn't feel special. This just doesn't feel exciting. I, what, what's going on? What, what am I missing? And I, and I couldn't figure it out. And, and then when I had kids, it dawned on me, oh, it's me. It's me. It's now my turn. I'm the one who's responsible for making Christmas special. But for for really different reasons than what you might initially kind of perceive, sometimes we go, here's something that's fairly insignificant, and we want people to pay attention to it, so we're going to make it special. But no, this is a life-changing, incredible event that because it happened so long ago, we need new people to rise up to go, hey, this is really a big deal. We need to figure out what it looks like to make this a big deal in our, in our current day because the angels showed up and that was amazing and that happened, but that doesn't happen every year. And so people need to go out and, and share with others what that looks like and what that means. And so like in my family, it was the day after Thanksgiving uh, it wasn't a shopping day for us. Uh, it was the day that Dad went up into the attic and just started, like, pulling everything out. And there's these garbage bags, and there's, there's just stuff everywhere. And Christmas just throws up all over our house. And there were, like, little corners of your house that you you've, you never notice. You don't really see, but then all of a sudden there's, like, some little figurine there, and you're like, huh. I never really noticed that we had that little corner over there, that little nook's got going on, but now all of a sudden there's some little uh, nativity scene going on or some little uh, person on like an ice skate on a piece of glass, kind of like, you just had all these little fun things, and then they would, 
my parents would schedule out these events throughout the season where we would go and we would drive around for hours just looking at Christmas lights, and they would begin to share stories with us. We go, you know how at church we talk about Jesus? What do you think this whole season's about? And we just start having those kinds of conversations. And it just made you think, made you ponder it more. We'd go to nativity plays, and we'd, we'd travel around to different churches that were having different events throughout the season to, to sing and to fellowship with other believers. And we'd come to events like this. And I actually remember, I'm not sure if it was my, my first time or, or somewhere in there, but there was this moment where finally, instead of like holding my dad's hand, who was holding a candle that was on fire, they gave me a candle, and they set it on fire. And I remember holding it going, this really has to be a special time in the world that they would give me fire in a building. This has to be a special moment. Something has to be going on here. And it was, and it is. And we have to keep reminding ourselves and keep doing things like this to remember how special and how much of an event this is. And the thing that, that I think if I whittled it down to kind of one thing is it's that um, I realized that, that we're the bearers of Christmas. And every person eventually at some point has a responsibility to be the bearer of Christmas. And some of you, you don't have that responsibility yet. You're still with your parents and they're going to they're gonna help you and teach you and show you that. But there will come a time when you step away and you become the leader who, who brings that forward on into the next generation and the next generation. And the meaning of Christmas moves forward and advances, ad, ad, advances to the next generation when we are bold enough to share the meaning of Christmas with others. Now, the meaning of Christmas um, is, is a fairly hot topic. I mean, it's, it's that, that Jesus came and, and was born, but is it, is it that Jesus came and was born and then he uh, so that he could die? Is that, is that, is that really the whole story? Like, is, is there more to the story than that? Uh, different people say different things. And um, for me, I'm, I'm very much kind of a, well, uh, let's look back and say, well, where, where did we come from so that we know how we got to where we are so we kind of understand what this is really about. And so um, we're going to start at the beginning. Uh, all of this stuff comes to us from the Bible, and the beginning of the Bible is uh, this book called Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 1, so page 1 of the Bible. Um, God, the creator of all the universe, he creates the universe. He speaks it into existence. And everything that he speaks into existence, he calls good. He says, ah, oh. he makes something. He says, this is good. And for three days, he names everything that he speaks into existence. And then day four, five, and six, he just stops naming stuff. And you're like, oh, this is really weird. Why did he stop naming stuff? And, and then he makes humans on day six. And this thing emerges, and you begin to see that, that God's very strange, and he doesn't, he doesn't do things the way that we do things. He's very different from us. He loves to share power. He loves to share authority. That's actually the problem. That's one of the things that keeps us so far apart from each other is we don't. We like to hoard it. We like to keep it to ourselves. And, but he likes to share it. And so on day five and six, all the things that he created on those days, he started bringing them to humans. He said, here, what do you want to call this? Here, what do you want to call this? And he starts sharing 
power and authority with humans. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And we go, okay, well, I've, I've seen you do that. So if I, just, if I just do what you've been doing, and, and it being fruitful and multiplying, that, that makes a lot of sense. We see God doing that in the creation stories. So we go, yeah, okay, we can do that. And then subduing it, we immediately have a different view of subdue than he does. Our view of being an overseer or of rulership is just so vastly different. Because for us, it's something about oppression. It's something about pushing people down and controlling people, whereas his idea is that you come up underneath somebody and you help them flourish and you help them become something bigger and more than they ever could have been on their own. And that's how he rules, and that's how he had called us to rule. And so chapter 3, it says that he walks with us in the cool of the day. But then this problem happens. There's, there's this serpent, and the serpent begins to get us to question and wonder, is God's way really the right way? Is the way that God defines good, is that really what good is? And it's kind of pictured in this, this tree, this knowledge of good and evil, and, and we take the authority on ourselves and we, we grasp autonomy for ourselves and we say, well, I'm going to decide what good is. I'm making that choice on my own. And doing so separated us so that we were not able to walk with God in the cool of the day any longer. But God made a promise. As we were being sent out of the garden, this place where we were able to do this together, he makes this promise and he says, one day there will be a seed that comes from a woman. And that seed that comes from a woman will crush the head of the serpent. And we ponder and we think about that and we realize, oh, and this little bit of hope as the story just even begins and crisis begins right away, this little bit of hope just kind of slides into the story that maybe one day, maybe one day we'll be able to walk again with God in the cool of the day again. Maybe one day something will happen in our hearts where we'll be able to submit ourselves to his guidance, to his love and his leadership again. And the story goes on and God starts a relationship with a man named Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, he, he, he starts this relationship and he starts to teach Abraham what does it look like to, to live good and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He, he begins to teach him what this looks like. And you get to chapter 18, and this really interesting thing happens, and, and uh, it's, it seems like a fairly obscure story, and it, and it kind of is, but it's just been rocking my world, so I just feel like I have to share it with you this morning or this evening. And... Um, so what happens is, is an, it's a negotiation that's gone wrong. It's actually what happens. So what happens is, is God, um, he comes down, and he, he's sharing a meal with Abraham. And, and uh, God always hears the cry of the oppressed. It's another just part of his character. When God hears people suffering, he hears it. He really hears it. Every time it happens, God hears the cry of the oppressed. And so... God had heard the cry of the oppressed, and so he came down, and there were these, these cities that were causing this oppression, and he had to go and see what was going on to see if he needed to deal with this and create justice in the situation. And so Abraham, concerned about this, he asked God, he says, what if there were, what if there were 50 righteous people would you sweep away the, the people that live in right relationships? Would you sweep them away with all the wicked? Or would you maybe save them? 
Would you save the 50 righteous? Would you do that? God's response is baffling because the way that a negotiation is supposed to work out, which I think God maybe didn't know how to negotiate, because instead of saying 100, 100 righteous people, and I'll, I'll save those righteous people. And then Abraham should have said something like, oh, 60. And they negotiate down to get somewhere around 75. But that's not what happens. Instead, God goes, yeah, for 50 righteous people, I will save them all. All. Not just the righteous people. I will save everyone in the city because of 50 righteous people. And Abraham goes, wow, I, I don't think I understand this God at all. That's a level of mercy that, that I, I can't grasp. And so he goes, well, I've, I've obviously shot too high. What about 45? For 45, God doesn't miss a beat. He just goes, yeah, sure. Abraham goes, uh, 40? He goes, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll save them all. Save the entire city for 40. 30, yep. 20, mm-hmm, sure. I'm not going to ask any more. What about 10? 10? Yeah. God doesn't miss a beat. And it's, it's wild because when you read it, it's like God doesn't slow down. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't change his language. It's the same thing over and over again. Absolutely. I'll save them all for that many. I'll save them all for that many. I'll save them all for that many. The person that stops the entire thing was Abraham. The person that doubted the level at which God desires to be merciful was Abraham. And the story abruptly stops. It comes to a screeching halt. And they just go off. And it forces you to sit there if you're really pondering it, because we're part of reading the scriptures, we're supposed to meditate on it. And you're sitting there pondering it, and, you, and this question just keeps popping up, and you can't make it go away. What if he would have said one? What if he would have said one? Is it possible that one righteous person could save them all? Is it possible? And hope just kind of begins to sizzle a little bit. And you're only 18 chapters into the story. And you go, there's hope that one day we'll walk with God in the cool of the day. And there's, there's hope that maybe one could save all. And you get to the story in Exodus where there's, there's this other group of people. It's, it's the people of Abraham and they've, they've been enslaved in a place. And God hears the cry of the oppressed again. And he comes to set them free. And the oppressors, he even wants to save them in the midst of the setting free. And so it, it culminates in this kind of, there's these ten plagues, and it kind of comes to this last one. And death is going to sweep over this nation. But there's a lamb, and you can kill this lamb, and you can put its blood on the, the doorpost of your house and for some reason, the blood of a lamb will stop death in its tracks. And you sit there and you go, what is happening in this story? Who is this God that wants to walk with us in the cool of the day? That maybe there is hope that one righteous person could save them all. That there's hope that the blood of a lamb could stop death in its tracks. As the story progresses on, uh, I wanted to actually go through the entire Bible uh, and do this, but Larry told me, you cannot do that because midnight is not an appropriate time for us to leave the Christmas Eve service. So fast forwarding a little bit, that didn't happen. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, Isaiah, there's the story of a good shepherd, 
a good shepherd that is promised to come. And when this good shepherd comes, he's going to come and he's going to shepherd and lead all of creation. And all of creation, everything that you would think of that would be violent and chaotic in creation is no longer violent and no longer chaotic. Violent animals that just want to kill other animals, they, they eat grass. It's the wildest story, and the shepherd's going to lead and guide creation. And hope again springs to life as we think about that creation could somehow be made new. And there's this really odd story in Ezekiel that we probably don't read often enough about this man named Ezekiel who's uh, he's sitting in exile. He's, he's away from his homeland. He's forced to be there. He's away from his God. He's away from his, the, all of his country. And he's just sitting there. And all of a sudden, he sees these living creatures in the sky. And he sees these wheels. And the, the story just starts, chapter 1 of Ezekiel just starts painting this super odd picture. And it's just, it's weird. And it, it makes you just want to like skip over it really quick. But what it's painting a picture of is this, this fiery chariot on wheels. And the creator of the universe is sitting upon this chariot. And Ezekiel's like, why are you here? What are you, what are you doing here? And it takes several chapters. Actually, you've got to wait until chapter 8. And Ezekiel's whisked away to his homeland. And God just begins to show him the oppression that those that he had originally set free have begun to oppress others and to harm others and to cause chaos in the world. And as they were doing it, you see in the story that same chariot sitting in the temple, sitting in the house of God. And slowly but surely as the story continues on and you see more and more of the chaos and the harm and the pain and the injury that the people cause, the chariot just starts to leave and go further and further away. And it heads off to be with those who are in exile, those who are in suffering, those who are going through many trials. And hope springs to life as we realize that God comes and dwells with us in our trials and in our suffering. And back again in Isaiah, there's this story, and Isaiah calls it good news. Good news that that king, the creator of the universe, would one day return. He would one day come back. And it, and it talks about it with great fanfare that actually the mountains themselves would be crushed down. And the valleys would be filled in to make this road wide and straight for the processional of the king to return. And hope springs to life that the king would return to his people again. And eventually the story comes on and the king, the king comes back, but it doesn't look anything like we ever thought a king coming back would look. But it's, it's not because of the king and it's not because of his character. It's because of us and the way that we see rulership. You see, all along throughout the story, the king shows that he's one that wants to lift up others, help others, serve others, create flourishing in a partnering relationship with others. And so how else would a king like that return but in the form of a baby? A baby that would one day crush the head of a serpent 
a baby born in a manger in an inch of sheep manure, a baby born to a teen mom who has no idea how to raise a kid, never done it before. It's not like she's had five kids already and she's got this thing on lock. She has no idea what she's doing. And God goes, you got this. You got this. What could sustain a woman like that? What could give a woman like that strength? What keeps her going? What keeps her driving forward? Not while the shepherds come and celebrate with her. Not while the wise men, they come and they show up. But what about week two? What about on birthday number one? What about after everybody else is gone and she's sitting there by herself? What about that middle of the night feeding? What about then? What keeps her going? What keeps her going is that she knows the story. She knows the story of hope that's spanned from Genesis all the way through to her current time. She knows that story, and that story drives her forward. Hope to walk with God one day in the cool of the day. Hope that one person could save all. Hope that the blood of a lamb could stop death. Hope that creation could be made new. Hope that God comes to dwell with us in our trials and in our sufferings. Hope that the king has returned. You see, we broke relationship with God. But that little baby, Jesus, he mends broken relationships, both with God and with others. It's Jesus who is the one righteous person that saves them all. It is Jesus who is the lamb whose blood stops death in its tracks. It is Jesus that is the good shepherd that makes creation new. And it is Jesus that is God come to dwell in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our suffering. It is Jesus who is the king who has returned. And just like Mary, we day to day, belly to belly, toe-to-toe in every aspect of our life need hope. We need hope. Her hope was looking forward because you don't get to fast forward through time. She lived through 30 or so years of being with Jesus, around Jesus, raising Jesus, hearing from Jesus. And she lived in hope. We need hope. We need hope. As we heal broken relationships, as disciples of Jesus, as we we model his way that he teaches us, we need hope in broken relationships as they begin to be healed by him being lived out through us. We need hope as we pray for those that do not know Jesus in our lives. We need hope as we suffer loss of loved ones. We need hope in the midst of those things. We need hope that Jesus' blood stops death in its tracks. We need hope that we diligent, as we diligently serve inside of our city, we need hope 
that a good shepherd can one day bring about new creation. When we struggle and we strive to create and make good and it just keeps getting knocked down, like two little kids playing and one builds up the blocks and then the other one just knocks it down and we just feel that over and over again and we begin to feel discouraged. We need that hope in the middle of those moments. We need hope as we suffer through our own lives. When suffering comes, we need Jesus to remember that he comes and he dwells in the midst of our suffering. We need hope that the king will one day return again. We need hope. And so we ask him to come.